The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Hey, when I worked in the engineering world, we used to have to create a prototype of, of something before we got to the, the real thing. And I think most of us understand the concept of a prototype. It's the first thing. It's a, it's a, a model, a mock-up. It's, it's not the final thing, but it's a type of the, the final thing. It bears a resemblance, we might say. Like it has some, some similarities, sure, but it also has some, some differences. And yet prototypes are extremely helpful in, in the engineering world. They help, they help us conceptualize the real thing, get excited about and ready for, catch the, the vision and possibility of the real thing, the ultimate thing. In my gospel community this past week, we were discussing justification, right? One of the greatest and most important doctrines of our faith, one of the most profound truths that any of us can, can grasp. And we were talking about Romans chapter 5, and in particular, verse 8, where Paul says that, that God shows his love for us, right? He demonstrates his love in that while we were still sinners, while we were still weak and powerless and unworthy, enemies of God, wretched even, that Christ died for us. And we didn't deserve it, right? Um, and yet it's ours if we trust in Jesus by faith. In my gospel community, someone made the point that that's a, it's a difficult doctrine to grasp because nothing else in our world works this way. <laughs> I mean, think about it. If, if, you are, if you are weak, powerless, unworthy, and worthless at your job, right, your boss is not going to come to you and say, hey, great, great job, here's your paycheck, in fact, here's a raise, you know? If you are weak and worthless in the sporting world, you're not going in the first round, you know, you're just not going to get that draft pick that you, that you dreamt of. No, almost everywhere we look in the world, we get what we work for. We earn our keep. We get what we deserve. But when it comes to the Bible, when, when it comes to salvation, the Bible says the exact opposite. It, it says that you get what you don't deserve. And it's so hard for us to get our heads around that Paul here in Romans chapter 5, he tells us about a prototype. He says, look at, look at Adam, the, the very first man. He says in verse 12, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin could not be counted where there was no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was, here it comes, a type of the one who was to come. Now, we looked at those verses in great depth last week, but let's zero in there. In verse 14, Paul says of Adam, he's a type, a prototype, if you will, of the one to come. He's a prototype that, that helps us conceptualize, get excited about, get our heads around the ultimate thing, the thing that he really wants us to understand, which is the person and finished work of Christ, our justification, his imputed righteousness, all of it, right? And there's differences and similarities between Adam and Christ. We're going to look at those today. But essentially, Paul is saying, if you want to understand Christ, if you want to understand justification and all the glorious implications and ramifications, you've got to understand Adam. 
In fact, if you get Adam wrong, you'll get Christ wrong. Now, remember what Paul's doing in this section of Romans, okay? From Romans 5 all the way to through chapter 8, he's concerned with us knowing and, and understanding the certainty of our salvation, the certainty of it. Here's how we put it last week, and it works as a theme or a big idea for this week as well as we work through this passage again. He says, the, the more, we said last week, the more you understand and comprehend the bad news, the more you'll understand and comprehend the good news the gospel. And therefore, the more awestruck you'll be by the person and work of Jesus. Let me say it another way. The more you understand Adam, okay, the way the prototype works, the more you'll understand how Christ works, how the gospel works. Or the more you understand your Adamic reality, the more you'll understand your Christ reality. Adam was a type, a type of the one who was to come, Jesus Christ our Lord. And as a type, there's some differences and there's some similarities. And the differences and the similarities all pull together to help us understand our Christ reality. This up here is going to be our outline today, but before we go further into that, one thing that we have to address before we go any further is the false teaching or the heresy of universalism. Universalism is a heresy that says everyone in the end will be saved. And universalists like Unitarians and some liberal mainline denominations or even independent theologically liberal churches teach, they say in the end, love wins. It doesn't matter how you live your life. It doesn't matter if you take this as the word of God or not. And therefore, it doesn't matter if you seek to obey it. It doesn't matter if you call sin, sin. It doesn't matter if you believe in Jesus and worship Jesus and seek to glorify Jesus through a life of repentance and and faith. It doesn't matter because in the end, all will be saved. That's what the universalist says. And they'll sometimes open to this section of Romans 5, pull a few verses completely out of context, disregarding the rest of Scripture and conclude, all will be saved in the end. No need to preach so much against sin. No need to trust, really, in the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. No need to worry about wrath and judgment. Everyone's going to be saved. We're all going to be fine. No real need, do you see, for Jesus. Maybe you know someone who believes like that. Maybe you love someone who believes like that. Maybe you're here today and and you believe like that and you're looking at this text even right now and you're agreeing, yeah, man, like I think that's what it says. Well, look where they look here. For example, in, in verse 15, Paul writes, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through this one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Okay, so if you look at that closely, the the many, they say, who died through one man's trespass are the exact same many to whom the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for. Or verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. The all, 
for whom one trespass led to condemnation for, they say, is the exact same all for whom the one act of righteousness leads to justification in life. Do you see how they get there? Let me give you three quick and simple reasons why the, the, the teaching of universalism is wrong. There's, more, there's way more. I'm just going to give you three quick and simple ones this morning. But number one is verse 17, the immediate context. What does Paul say in verse 17? He says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And so here, sandwiched in between the two verses that, that universalists want to use as proof texts for their heresy is a verse that exactly contradicts the heresy. It's not all or everyone universally who reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. No, it's those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. There's a receiving here that matters. Paul has been stressing throughout the letter that justification comes by faith. Not all are justified. You must have faith and receive the abundance of grace and the free gift by faith. Now, Paul doesn't say back in, in chapter 1, verse 16, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone. No, he says, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also the Greek. Like, meaning anyone can get in on this, right? But you must believe, you must receive, you must have faith. Reason number two, that universalism is wrong. Jesus says so. I mean, that's, this one's pretty easy, you know? Always a good reason. If Jesus says so, that's always a good reason. There's lots of places we could look, but the simplest and plainest is the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, right near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where he says there that there will be those on the final day who will hear the words, I never knew you. Depart from me. In Matthew 25, we read that when the Son of Man comes in, in glory, he will separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff, Luke 3.17. And so reason number one, that universalism is wrong, the immediate context. Reason number two, Jesus says so. And reason number three, Paul is addressing here, in this section here in Romans 5, the justified. We are in part of Paul's letter to the Romans where Paul is explicitly trying to help believers understand the implications and ramifications of their justification. Remember chapter 5, verse 1. It started out saying, therefore, since, therefore, since we have been justified. Remember? In verse 12, there's a, another therefore. Paul is still deliberately addressing the justified, those who are in Christ, united with Christ by faith. And therefore, when you read of the many in verse 15, to whom the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for? And when you read of the all in verse 18, for whom the one act of righteousness leads to justification and life, 
the many and all are on the side of the comparison defined as those who have been justified. All who believe, Jew and Gentile. All who receive. Another way to say it, Paul here is comparing and and contrasting all those who are in Adam and all those who are in Christ. He's comparing and contrasting our Adamic reality and our Christ reality. The prototype and the real thing. The ultimate thing. And so now let's turn our attention to these glorious contrasts, these differences that Paul lays down here for us. I want to put them for us under three headings, okay? The first contrast that he lays for us is the the nature of their actions and then the immediate result of their actions and then the ultimate result of their actions. And remember what what we saw in, in verses 12 through 14. God created the world, it was good. Remember this? Genesis 1 and 2. But then sin came into the world through one historically real man, Adam. He sinned. And death therefore came through sin because the wages of sin are death. And we're told further that death spread to all men because all sinned. We looked at this last week. It was was deep. We put the scuba gear on. We had to go deep. But what we saw last week is there is a sense in which Adam, as the head of the human race... When he sinned, we sinned. His sin and the guilt for his sin, the the wage of his sin, which is death, was counted as ours. That's why everyone died between the time of Adam and Moses, even though the law hadn't been given yet to break. That's what he's saying in verses 12 through 14. And it's because of Adam's guilt for his sin was counted as theirs and ours apart from Christ. This is our Adamic reality. We have not just inherited a sinful nature. We don't just sin because we're sinful. We have inherited Adam's guilt. It's the doctrine of original sin. And you might be sitting here, especially if you missed last week, or maybe if you were there, you might still be sitting here thinking, that's not fair. (laughs) And I'd say, just wait. It's all part of the prototype. But to understand the prototype properly, we we have to understand both how it's different from the ultimate thing and how it's the same. How our Christ reality is different from our Adamic reality, the contrast, and then through parallelism, also the similarities. Let's look at the differences first. First, again, the nature of their actions is different. The nature of Adam's action and the nature of Christ's action, that is. Look at verse 15 in the text. It says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Now, what's being contrasted here? It's Adam's trespass on the one hand and the free gift on the other. That's the contrast. Adam's action was a a trespass breaking a known law. You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? It was a trespass. Jesus' action was a free gift. One is an act of self-assertion in the garden. The other is an act of self-sacrifice on the cross. The nature of their actions, see, is different. 
Now keep verse 15 in front of you because every word in verse 15 is relevant. Again, on the one hand, and from last week, our endemic reality, many died through one man's trespass. What's he say next though? Much more. Much more. Paul here is saying that Jesus didn't just come and and perform the equal and opposite action. He accomplished much more. In part, the much more underscores the certainty. It's qualitative, but it's, 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 it's quantitative too. Adam's action led to death. Death is an end. There's nothing more, let alone much more. Jesus' action, however, his action of self-sacrifice in coming and living and dying, offering us salvation, the free gift by grace, it abounds. Death does not abound, but the free gift abounds. Death is an end, but the free gift goes on and on and on. It abounds. It is much more. That's the first difference. There's a difference in the nature of their actions. Again, one was an act of self-assertion that led to an end. One was an act of self-sacrifice that abounds. Secondly, the, the, the second difference has to do with the immediate result of their actions. Look at verse 16. And the free gift is not like In the contrast, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. And so we have, on the one hand, condemnation. The result of one man's sin. Again, emphasizing what we looked at last week. That through this one man's sin, we are all guilty. Condemnation is the judgment that is passed to us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. To use the language of Ephesians chapter 2. By nature, our edemic nature, we are children of wrath. Which means apart from Jesus, you and I stand condemned. If you're here this morning and you have not trusted in Jesus for salvation, if you haven't believed, if you haven't received, you sit in this room today condemned. On the last day, the Bible teaches that wrath will come upon you. Not only because of the sins you commit, but because of your very nature and the nature of humanity's inherited guilt from Adam. Which means just being a good person isn't enough to stop the waves of wrath. You can't fix it. That was the point last week. Just comparing yourself to others and concluding, I'm not so bad, isn't going to save you. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But, but for those of us who were in Christ, who have trusted in Christ, the free gift of Christ following many trespasses brought something completely different, didn't it? Not condemnation, justification. Justification, I hope you can see, is the precise opposite of condemnation. As you sit in this room this morning, you are on one side of the equation or the other. 
Either you are in Adam and therefore under condemnation, or you are in Christ and therefore under justification. There's no in-between. There's no gray middle. And there will be no gray middle when Christ returns. There is in and out, sheep and goats, wheat and chaff, condemned and justified. And notice here another aspect of the difference. The judgment, we're told, following one trespass. Put your finger under those words in the text, one trespass. The judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses, move your finger under those words now. The free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Here's what Paul is saying. It's an elaboration of the much more that we just saw in verse 15. Through Jesus' work on the cross... And overcoming the grave, he didn't just take care of the one trespass, the big one, Adam's. He didn't just take care of the wrath for that one sin, removing the guilt of Adam's one trespass from us, sort of balancing the sides of the equation. No, much more, it says. The free gift following many trespasses brought justification, which means when Jesus died, He died for all sin, for all time, for all those who trust in him. He died for all sin, for all time, for all those who trust in him. If you belong to Jesus, and this is only true of you if you do, But if you belong to Jesus, he has paid the price for Adam's sin, which was imputed to you. Yes, he has also paid the price for the sinful nature that you inherited from Adam. And he has paid the price for every sin of yours, past, present, and future. You, my friend, have been justified. Justified. Pronounced, not guilty, counted as right before God once and forever. And there's more than that. Difference number three. The ultimate result of their actions. Verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. What's the ultimate result of Adam's action? Death reigning through that one man. I mean, Paul has been hammering this in this passage, hasn't he? Ever since verse 12, death came into the world through sin. Death spread to all men. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. Many died through the one man's trespass. And here again, death reigned through that one man. Death, 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 death. The world is a place of cemeteries, Martin Lloyd-Jones said when commenting on this verse. I think it was Ben Franklin who in 1789 wrote that in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except what? Death and taxes. Paul here seems to agree with the death part, doesn't he? And yet, look at the rest of the verse. Much more, 
Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul is saying. This is the the bridge between the differences and the similarities between Adam and Christ. He's saying, as certain as death is for those who are in Adam, that's how certain life is for those who are in Christ. Nothing can be said to be certain in this world but death and taxes unless you trust in Christ, in which case life is certain. Eternal life with Jesus. I'm the resurrection and the life, Jesus says in John 11, right? Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Never This is again why Paul uses the delightful phrase, much more, much more. Death, again, is an end. Eternal life goes on and on and on and on. Death reigned, taking each son and daughter of Adam to his or her end. But in Christ, all the sons and daughters of God reign in life and on and on into eternal life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Are you seeing this? Adam was a type of the one to come. He was a prototype. He's a prototype, Paul says, who helps us conceptualize this real thing, get excited about it, ready for, catch the vision and possibility of the ultimate thing. Now we've seen the differences. Let's look at the way now that Paul puts the glorious similarities. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Look at the structure of the sentence. It's different than what we were just looking at in the prior paragraph. In the prior prior paragraph, the structure was for if much more. It was a structure of contrast. Here, though, the structure is just as, so also. It's a structure of comparison. As one, so one. Paul is saying, just as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, and it did. It did. All you have to do is look at the time between Adam and Moses and see that everyone died. It proves it. Just as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so also one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. We've already talked about the all. This is not universalism. This is all who are in Christ. All who have received the abundance of grace and the free gift of his righteousness. This is Paul again rebuking Ben Franklin and saying, this is certain right here. It's certain. Listen to me, believers here in this room, your justification is certain. It's as certain as death. And not only your justification, but life is certain. Eternal life for you is certain. That's the parallel with Adam. This is what the prototype was pointing to. This is the ultimate thing. And not only this, Paul continues in verse 19. 
For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteousness. Look again at the structure. It's a structure of similarity. For as, so by. For as, by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam's, the prototype, the many were made sinners. The word made here means constitute or counted as, declared to be. For as the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, and we know they were. Again, the wages of sin is death. The way we know the many were made sinners is because everyone dies. 1 Corinthians 5.22 says, For as in Adam all die, so also the prototype points ahead to the real thing. In Christ shall all be made alive. Or here in Romans 5.19, So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous, constituted as righteous, counted as righteous, declared righteous. Are you tracking with this? If you're a Christian, this is the big truth that Paul longs for you to grasp here. As surely as you were counted as sinful in Adam, just as surely you were counted as righteous in Christ. But not just as surely. Paul is saying, it comes to you the same way. Just as Adam's sinfulness was imputed to you, counted as yours. Remember how that didn't seem fair? That's not fair. So also, he says now, Christ's righteousness has been imputed to you, counted as yours, which actually isn't fair either, is it? That's why it's called a free gift, not a free wage. You didn't deserve it. You couldn't earn it. You were weak. You were powerless. You were sinful. And Christ came for you. He lived for you. His perfect life, his perfect obedience, his perfect righteousness has been counted as yours, Christian. He died for you. His perfect death, his perfect obedience and sacrifice, it's all been counted as yours. And he's not stating what can happen. He's telling you what has happened if you belong to Jesus. I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones puts this. He, he sums it up so well. Look at this. This is from a sermon he preached in London in 1958 on this text. He said, look at yourself in Adam. Though you had done nothing, you were declared a sinner. Look at yourself in Christ and see that though you have done nothing, you were declared to be righteous. That is the parallel. We must get rid of all thoughts of our actions. There's no boasting. We do nothing. All we are and have results from the obedience of the one, our Lord. See, the whole point of this is for you to know how certain, how complete, how sure your salvation really is. To know your Christ's reality. To know just how finished, finished is. It's complete, it's finalized. It's settled. 
It's accomplished. If you belong to Jesus, it's, it's never going to be unaccomplished ever again. If it could be unaccomplished, it wasn't really accomplished to begin with. But if you belong to Christ, it was accomplished. You're not going to wake up one day and find it unsettled. It was settled. You're not going to, by some mistake or sin of your own, unfinalize it. It was finalized. It's complete. It'll never be incomplete. It's actually finished. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The bill has been settled by the blood of Christ. The limitless supply. Like you can't even leave the tip. You're more than a conqueror, he's going to tell us. Think about that. When you wake up someday and you're like, I'm a conqueror. No. First off, nobody does that. But no. Paul says, listen to me. You're more than a conqueror. <laughs> Nothing's going to separate you. Nothing. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation is going to separate you from the love of God. That sounds pretty final. No one's going to snatch you out of his hand. There's no unarticulated expectations that you're not going to meet and then find out one day that you didn't meet them. There's no divine look of disapproval upon you. He has raised you up with Christ and seated you in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. You have peace with God, access to God. You can, with confidence, draw near to the throne of God, the author of Hebrews tells us. You and I have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus. This is our Christ's reality. And this is your Christ's reality if you trust in Christ. And this can be your Christ's reality if you haven't yet. You know, the best book that I've read in the last two years that wasn't a Swedish crime drama is Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. Okay, we like this book so much, we tried to give a copy to every single one of you, okay? And so if you were here when we give those away, you got the book. If you haven't read it, that's your own fault, right? But listen, there's a chapter in Ortland's book titled, I Will Never Cast You Out. Ortland didn't make up those words. Jesus spoke those words in John 6, verse 37. Listen to how Ortland describes this Christ reality of ours, though. He says, fallen, anxious sinners are limitless in their capacity to perceive reasons for Jesus to cast them out. Limitless in it. We are factories of fresh resistances to Christ's love. Even when we run out of tangible reasons to be cast out, such as specific sins or failures, we tend to retain a vague sense that given enough time, Jesus will finally grow tired of us and hold us at arm's length. Ortland goes on then to write out this fictitious conversation between us and God, writing, no, no, wait, we say, as we cautiously approach Jesus, you don't understand. I have really messed up in all kinds of ways. I know, God responds. 
Well, you know, most of it, sure, certainly more than what others see, but there's perversity down inside of me that's hidden from everyone. I know. I see it all. Well, the thing is, it's not just my past. It's, it's actually here in my present, too. I understand. But I don't know if I can break free from this. I don't know if I can break free from it anytime soon. God says, that's the only kind of person that I came to help. And the burden is heavy, and it's heavier all the time. Then let me carry it. It's too much to bear. Not for me. Oh, you don't get it. My offenses aren't directed towards others. They're actually directed at you. Then I am the one most suited to forgive them. But the more of the ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll be fed up with me. And Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. <laughs> now listen, I know that this actually makes some of you in this room a little squeamish. A little bit uncomfortable. It's like someone, someone giving you compliments. You know, and, and it's not like you're like, oh, oh, stop. You're like, no, seriously, stop it, right? Makes some of us uncomfortable. And the reason it makes some of us so darn uncomfortable is that we are pretty uncomfortable, actually, with certainty. Think about it. Nothing around us is ever certain, is it? Ask someone in this room who's lost someone recently how certain life feels to them. It extends even beyond losses, friends, from the wedding altar to campaign promises to product advertisements on TV and Amazon reviews online. We're used to being overpromised and underdelivered. That's why you read the reviews. Two stars, better, better look into that. Don't want to get duped, you know? Friends, listen, God never, ever overpromises and undelivers. God always, instead, perfectly promises and perfectly delivers. He's got divine five-star reviews. Right? And he didn't buy them, didn't pay for them, so people to give him these reviews. He's proved it through the pages of Scripture over and over and over again. And you might be here right now thinking, okay, okay, but what about sin? You know, what, what about obedience? What about pursuing holiness and living uprightly? What about the law? And I'm glad you asked. In fact, if we're not asking those questions, we're probably not actually tracking with Paul. Wherever the true gospel is preached, the false charge of antinomianism follows. Antinomianism is the belief that the law has no place in the Christian life. That too is a heresy. Another way to say it is wherever the true gospel is proclaimed, the false charge of license follows. Well, we just do whatever we want to then? By no means, Paul's going to say. This is an objection that Paul was so well versed in. He knew that when he pushed on the throttle of the assurance of salvation, there would be those who'd want to pump the brakes on holiness. See, for most Jews... 
the law would solve the problem that Adam introduced into the world. Obey it. Just obey it. When you mess up, do the sacrifices. We got the law. They say, what are you saying? Are we just supposed to sin that grace may abound? That's where we'll start next week in Romans 6, 1, by no means. But look at the end of our passage for today, verse 20. Now the law came, the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Look what Paul is saying. He says the law came in to increase the trespass. What does that mean? Well, most likely, Paul is saying here that once people had the written law, they were no longer merely committing sins against their conscience or the law that was written upon their heart, as he talks about in Romans 2.15, but rather now they're actually committing willful trespasses. That's the difference between sin and trespass. A trespass is a sin defined as such by the law, like Adam had in the garden when he was explicitly told not to eat of the tree. In that way, introducing the law at the time of Moses increased trespass. This doesn't surprise us because knowledge of sin never stopped anyone from sinning, did it? In fact, sin increased. But God, being rich in mercy, he didn't grow increasingly furious and eventually say, enough already, I've had it with you. No, instead, we're told, grace abounded all the more. Sin reigns in the reign of Adam. It reigns in death, he says, but grace reigns in the reign of Christ. It reigns through righteousness, the righteousness that is ours in Christ, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Does that mean that you'll never, ever sin again as one who is in Christ? No. In fact, in chapter 7, we're going to read of Paul's own wrestling when he says, I do the things I don't want to do, and I do, I do the things that I don't want to do. Both ways. Do the ones I don't, and I don't the ones I do. Does that mean that we go soft on sin? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We're commanded in Chapter 6, verse 12, to not let sin reign in our mortal bodies. And so sin isn't gone. It's not gone. We do still sin as Christians, and we are to wage war against sin. In fact, the true believer within whom the Holy Spirit dwells will both be convicted of sin when it's present in their life and simultaneously so amazed at the abounding grace of God, that she will spare no effort to pursue holiness. And yet also, the true believer, we're told, is set free from sin. (laughs) Sin no longer has dominion over you, since you're no longer under the law, but under grace. I mean, grace upon grace upon grace, grace that abounds, even when your sin increases, This grace that reigns through righteousness leading you to perfectly promised and perfectly delivered eternal life. This is Paul's way of saying 
to true Christians. Don't let the presence of indwelling sin distract you from the certainty of your justification. There's obviously a lot more to cover. I can't wait to get into 6 and 7 with you guys. This is probably enough for now. Don't let the presence of indwelling sin distract you from the certainty of your justification. Let's pray. Father, these are glorious truths here in the book of Romans. It's dense. It's thick. Some of us just feel like we got a brain exercise. And yet, Lord, I pray that these glorious truths would now settle on our hearts. The glorious truth of the certainty of our salvation. Through it, would you cast out any complacency that we might have against sin? Would you make us hunger and thirst for righteousness and pursue it while also resting in the certainty of our justification? Thank you for Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.